G'day and welcome to the Mind Your Body Show. I am your host, Jacob Andre, and today I am talking to Dean Rioli. So if you'd like to know more about the art of coaching and communication, stay tuned. Hi, I'm Jacob Andre, and for over a decade, I've trained everyone from children to elite athletes to move better, feel better, and perform better. While a thorough understanding of fitness and nutrition is vital, underpinning that is mindset. And I've come to discover just how important it is. I've worked with literally thousands of people. And more often than not, it's the ones who win the mind game who succeed in the big game. So how do they do it? This is the Mind Your Body Podcast. G'day and welcome to the episode Prelude with Dean Rioli. Now, if you are watching it on YouTube, then I would absolutely love it if you can hit the like button if you enjoyed the video, share if you took something away from it, and comment and interact with us as we're going through the episode. And of course, you may be tuning in, listening in on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Libsyn. Now, there's something that I would really like to be able to do is to start doing a calling out and acknowledging and thanking our five-star reviews. So I just noticed that we had our first five-star rating. So if you jump on to Apple Podcasts, The Mind Your Body Show, and give us a five-star rating and then give us a review, I'm going to pick one for the week. Now, it may take a couple of weeks before we get any, but I'm really hoping that we get some. And I'm going to pick one for the week and call it out and read it out to you uh, as a thank you for that five-star rating and review, because of course that helps us to spread the word and get the message out um, and share the stories of all these amazing guests that come on the show like Dean. Now, if you don't already know, I absolutely am loving Instagram at the moment. I love it in so many ways for the stories, the reels, the posts, the lives, uh, and what else am I forgetting? Instagram TV, there's five of them. I'm absolutely loving Instagram and I'm sharing a whole bunch of behind the scenes stuff over there. So if you're not already following us, at the Mind Your Body Show with underscores in between each word, then please do so. And if you are tuning in onto, whether it's a video on YouTube or one of the audio streams, then please take a screenshot on your device and share it to your Instagram stories, tagging myself and also Dean Rioli um, on your story and tell us what your biggest takeaway is. Okay, now, of course, you can get access to all of those different platforms from our home base, themindyourbodyshow.com. And from there, you can see all of the episodes with all of our guests. And you can also sign up for our two-week intro package for the coaching um, that I do. I have a few online coaching clients and they all start off with a two-week intro package. See if it's right for you by heading on over to the website, themindyourbodyshow.com. Sign up for that two-week intro package. It's only $49 and get started. And let's see how we can develop you on your journey to whether it's just health and fitness or strength and conditioning in sport or whatever it might be. Alrighty, so this episode with Dean was almost like a, or it was a catch up with an old mate. And it was an opportunity for me to, um, I suppose, clarify a few things, I would say. on We worked together for five years. He came on as an assistant coach with a local football club, Wanderers. Um, we realized that we had a really good working relationship. He asked me to stick with him and move with him to a club, which was lower down the ladder and help develop them and bring them up. So we went off to another football club for two seasons and then came back to that initial club for two years and uh, developed a very, very unique and strong relationship between head coach and runner slash strength and conditioning coach that you are gonna learn about in this episode. It was 
an opportunity for me to ask about communication and a bunch of stuff that we did. I don't want to get too much into it because I want to start shortening up these preludes and just get straight into the episode. So without any further ado, let's get into it. Ladies and gentlemen, Dean Rioli. Welcome to the episode and welcome to Dean Rioli. Dean, how are you? G'day, Jacob. Good to see you again. I know it's been a while. We've spent five seasons working together in the local football competition here. The first season you came on board with Wanderers Football Club um, as an assistant coach, and that was where I first met you. And then we then spent two years at Palmerston Magpies Football Club and two years back at Wanderers Eagles Football Club. Uh, that was probably about five years ago now. So what's been happening? Well, since that, mate, I've moved back to Melbourne. Um, it's been over four years now that I've been back here. And, um, yeah, mate, I, uh, I came back here. Obviously, a lot of employment opportunities back here. And, um, you know, spending that five years back in Darwin was good to, to reconnect. Uh, obviously, I left home at 14 to, to go to school in Perth and, and chase the, the AFL dream. And, um, so, yeah, leaving, leaving the Territory when I was only a kid, uh, it was good to come back and reconnect and, and um, you know, spend some time there as an adult. And, uh, but after five years, mate, it was, it was time for me um, to come back to Melbourne and, and chase some uh, employment opportunities down here. That's, that's actually where I want to really get into to begin with. So what was your childhood like leading up to the age of 14 when you moved away? Let's go right back. And I want to hear the story as to what it was like eventually to move away as a young kid and then how you then chased that dream, ultimately um, succeeded in that dream. And there's one particular thing that will come back around on what I think was the pinnacle of it for you. Um, but what was life like as a child leading up to that 14 years of age and then moving out? Look, I was fortunate to, to grow up on the Tiwi Islands. Uh, that's where, I guess, um, you know, the, the upbringing of, of being in a, a small community, obviously Garden Point on, on, on Melville Island, there's only, you know, 340 people that live on that community. So it's very much a, a close-knit community. Uh, you know, our school, I think there was 70 kids from, you know, start of school or prep, I think they call it up until grade seven. Um, so it was very much uh, a great environment, I think, to, to grow up in. And, um, you know, sport, um, when you played sport, it was just, it was very much inclusive because you needed the numbers to, especially football being the, the, the number one sport. But we played stuff like softball and touch rugby and basketball and whatever we could. So the girls and boys really, um, you know, we, we, we had to make up the numbers to, to fill teams. And, um, you know, it was a, a beautiful upbringing, you know, with uncles and cousins and, and other community members. It was uh, very much close-knit. And, you know, obviously, once you finish year seven, you have to then go on and move off the island to, to continue your high school. So normally St. John's or Camilda back then, I think that's changed the name of uh, to Halebury or... Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I think when I was ready for high school, um, my dad and stepmom and the whole family, we moved back into Darwin uh, or moved to Darwin so that, you know, we had a, a place to come home to each day um, instead of the, the boarding environment. Um, so that's where, you know, once we left the island, it was moving to Darwin. And I think halfway through year 10 um, was then, uh, oh, sorry, the end of year 10 was when I moved to Perth and, and did my year 11 and 12 down there so uh yeah right up until then you know i played with waratahs as a junior uncle morris 
when he finished at Richmond and then South Fremantle, he came back up and Waratahs uh, were lucky enough to, to, to get him as a, a senior coach. So, you know, all the Rioli family obviously come from St. Mary's, but when I was ready to start playing you know, competitive football in the, in the Darwin League, um, yeah, we, we went over to Waratahs and, and that's where I went up and um, played my junior football. So what school did you actually go to when you first came to Darwin? Yeah, Nycliffe High School, mate. Um, so I went there and halfway through year 10. And then uh, I moved with my mum down to Bachelor, uh, sorry, Adelaide River. And then, you know, I spent, uh, so the first half of year 10 was at Nycliffe High School. And then uh, the second half of year 10 was at Bachelor Area School. Right? So uh, I got to spend some time down there and, and loved my time down in um, Adelaide River and Bachelor. So very much a different environment coming from the island and going inland. And, and you know, I thought Melville Island was small, but uh, the School of Bachelor was even smaller. <laughs> and so why did you then move away? What was the, do you remember the conversations uh, with your parents or other family members around moving away to pursue the football career in your teenage years? Well, I think it was, uh, you know, when I was, you know, the start of year 10 uh, or maybe year nine was when I felt, um, you know, I could play the game. So obviously growing up on the Tiwi Islands, I spent most of that time just chasing the young Tiwi boys. You know, I was never quick enough, um, you know, and I was, I was still learning the game. And I spent my entire juniors basically chasing uh, the Tiwi Islanders. So I, I learned a lot over there and it wasn't until I moved to Darwin that, you know, I started uh, playing full forward for Waratahs and, and then made the NT, you know, the, the rep representative sides and, and started kicking bags of goals, mate. I, uh, I was a full forward, so um, you know, I think it was 17 goals, nine behinds was my biggest score in the under-14s that I kicked. And, uh, and that's when I realised, well, you know, I can actually play the game and... and South Fremantle was obviously a, a location or a football club that, you know, the entire family, my dad went down there in the early 70s and then Uncle Morris followed and Uncle Willie, Uncle Cyril, Uncle, um, you know, Uncle Johnny, they, they all went down and spent some time there. So naturally, that was the goal of mine was to go and play with the, the Bulldogs down there. And um, so it, it was the right time, I thought, um, at the end of year 10 to, to move away and if, uh, you know, I think because it was such a passion of mine, I, my mum moved down there with me. Um, so the, the family moved down there. So that's where I, I had a, a good family base. So my mum's from there and, and my grandparents were down there and some family friends. So um, it was good to go down there. And I think to do year 11 and 12, it was just great to meet other people in my school. So I played in the local uh, football team there and, and you know, that's where you make your friends. So I think uh, you, you got your school, but uh, my friends were... Um, you know, got me down to Lakes Football Club where I continued my, uh, my journey as a, a football player and a full forward down there. And so what was that transition like then from Lakes Football Club, correct me if I'm wrong there, into South Fremantle? Oh, look, it was good because uh, I think it was the, the Colts, um, I think it was under 18s or 19s. I think it was 18s. They just changed it from 19s to under 18s. Um, so I went down there and did a pre-season and, um, yeah, I was just excited, you know. I was now part of the Red and White, Western, uh, you know, South Fremantle Football Club and where all my uncles had played and, and yeah, it was, it was exciting, you know. And uh, even though it was Colts level, uh, it was just great to be in, in, in that football environment. So, you know, I got a, a year of Colts in 
think that was in 1994, uh, sorry, 95 was my first year at Colts. And I think it was the very the second last game of the year. I was, uh, I was able to play a senior game down there when I was, uh, um, yeah, still in, in Colts year. So I got one senior game in, in my first year. And um, so, yeah, that was uh, very, very exciting times. And so then how you obviously were drafted to Essendon. Um, what year was that? And then what was that next little transition and journey like? Yeah, look, I think uh, so my three years at South Fremantle in the, the Colts and then played in that senior year in 97 where we won the grand final um, by six points against East Fremantle. Uh, you know, I won the rising star for the, the West Star Rules competition that year and um you know, I, I got overlooked in the draft. I, uh, I spoke to, I think, 11 clubs and got overlooked by all of them. And then the rookie, and then I went and trained with West Coast Eagles uh, during that pre-season. And West Coast were going to pick me up with pick five, I think it is. Uh, oh, sorry, pick four they had. Um, they were going to pick me up with their, their first rookie pick. Um, but then Essendon, who, I, who wasn't one of the 11 clubs that I spoke with, ended up picking me up at, at pick three in the rookie draft. So uh, that was exciting. Uh, I was an Essendon supporter, you know, growing up and uh, Michael Long was my hero. So, you know, I followed the Bombers. So to get drafted there was, uh, yeah, that was a, a, an awesome uh, feeling for me. Um, but yeah, moving over here, it was, it was a, a good transition. I, I moved in with Longy uh, when I first got here, and the the, the club, uh, the guys at the club still talk about it. When I moved over here, I had nothing. I had a green sports bag. I think it was a VB bag that I found. And when I got off the plane, they thought that was my carry on, and basically said, "Well, you know, here's the uh, you know the turnstiles. Your bag will come in here." And I said, "No, this is all I've got." So they basically thought that uh, for me, it was just, you know, I was there for a short time and, and I wasn't going to last because that's all I walked off the plane with. And, and that's all I owned at that stage coming over here as a 19-year-old, a mate, was just a, a green VB sports bag. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, that's a story that still gets told here in Melbourne. So what was it like? I, w- I want to know your relationship with Loris Berlacci, who Loris was actually the first person I ever interviewed for this podcast. I worked with him for a couple of, uh, for a year or so at the Institute of Sport here. And um, you obviously worked with him. He worked, with, he talks about Michael Long and um, he was at Essendon as a strength and conditioning coach from I think 1988 through to not about 98 with a year off. Um, I think Collingwood poached him for a year after the 93 premiership. And so he was at Collingwood for 94, but you obviously were with him in that sort of period before he left um, in the late 90s, I think. Is that correct? Yeah, so he came, I think it was in my second or third year when John Quinn came over, that Loris then came back to Essendon. I think he, he, he we got him off Geelong. So he spent time at Essendon and went to Collingwood, then went to Geelong, and then uh, we were lucky enough to get him back at Essendon. And, and look, he was a machine, mate. He's... Uh, you know, with his uh, his clean shaved head, he he uh, used to do these these squats and all these weights, and the veins would be popping out. But he was just a, a great coach. You know, he he not only gave you weights programs, it was really explained why he did them, and you know, teaching you the right technique to get the the most out of each uh, exercise. So, um, but you know, away from the the coaching side, uh, he was just a a great fella because he's got some amazing stories, Loris. Um, you know, so to to actually have an opportunity to sit down with him and hear some of his stories, he's 
He's just a, a wonderful person. Yeah, he does have some amazing stories and he's still got the shaved head and the veins popping out everywhere uh, and he yep. still loves his weights. He's in China now. But um, he, one of the, or many of his stories include his relationship with Kevin Sheedy. And I want to know what your relationship was like with him and how the, the success that came about with Essendon in those late 90s, early 2000s. Oh, look, Sheets and I, I was quite lucky. I, I think Sheets was such a, a, a caring person for his players. And, you know, I, I built a, a fantastic relationship with, with Kevin. And, um, you know, I think I would have struggled under some of the other coaches. Um, you know, that was basically one, one hat fits all style of coaching where Kevin was really about, um, you know, dealing with individuals and then working on their strengths and weaknesses to pull them in a, a team and to, to work out how does he get the best uh, performance out of, out of the team with individuals. So uh, I liked his style and, and look, I, I had some, um, you know, struggles throughout my career and, and the best thing about Kevin is that we'd, we'd always go and have a coffee. Uh, so I had that relationship away from football where, you know, uh, Tom Hafey was his coach and, and uh, an absolute legend of the, the AFL you know, environment down here. And um, so often he would bring Tom Hafey to, to have a coffee with us as well. And, um, you know, just to talk about, well, how, how, you know, he would coach Kevin back in the day and why, you know, some of the styles that Kevin uses on, on us as players, how that would relate. But just to, to speak to someone like Tommy who'd get up at 5am or 4am every single morning and go and do, you know, 500 push-ups, 500 sit-ups, swim all the way up St Kilda Beach and, you know, every single morning without fail, without having a drop of alcohol and, um, you know, the most disciplined person that I think I've ever met, um, you know, and I think at that stage he was 80 years old and, um, you know, so it was just fantastic to meet some great people and that was the type of person Kevin was, is he would bring other people in to, uh, you know, to help build relationships and, and you know, when I first got to the club, I, I basically was a one-word answer type of guy, I was shy and, and quiet and, um, you wouldn't know now because I, I love a chat, but um, Kevin used to drag me along to these uh, events where, you know, and be a, a guest speaker. And, you know, there'd be, you know, 500 to 2,000 people in a room, but he'd always just grab me and say, come on, you're coming with me. And, and then we'd, we'd do these guest speaking luncheons and dinners and, um, you know, and he was big on uh, encouraging me to share my story because, you know, being in Melbourne, now, people really were genuinely interested in, well, what's the Tiwi Islands like and how did you end up here and what was your journey and, and what we're talking about right now. Uh, he taught me that people are genuinely interested. So tell your story. And, and you know, from there, that's where, you know, my, uh, my public speaking um, took off from there. And, and I did a lot more um, events just through Kevin Sheedy uh, pushing me to, to, uh, to share my journey. So what were some of your challenges uh, in the AFL once you moved over to Melbourne or even outside of the AFL um, at that time in your life? Oh, look, I think the AFL bubble, it's such a uh, high-tempo, high-paced, uh, highly-pressured environment. And, um, you know, you, you have to be on all the time. And, and um, you know, for me, I, I had a... Uh, I had a, a, a knee operation just before I got drafted where I had a bent leg. Um, sorry, I had uh, bone spurs in my knee. So 
my right leg was always bent and whenever I got full extension, I'd do a hamstring. And um, so, you know, we, I think I had maybe 12 operations on my right knee, you know, through a uh, sort of a 12 year period. And um, yeah, that, that was something that, you know, injuries, homesickness. And I, I think the homesickness, it was really, you know, there were, you know, we, we lost some, you know, close people that we knew, uh, you know, through death and, um, and sickness. And, um, you know, it was just a young man trying to make it in the big city life in a high pressured environment. It wasn't easy. Uh, I was injured a lot. Um, you know, I struggled with my weight up and down due to injury and, uh, you know, probably not being as disciplined as I should have been, um, you know, and, and that was the thing. I think, you know, you always need support. And, and I think, you know, people just see you on TV and think, you know, you're living a good life, you're on TV, you're playing football, you're earning good money, everything else. But, you know, it's, uh, they only see that, you know, I guess that two hour game and, you know, just think that's the pinnacle but the, the amount of time to actually stay, you know, to get to that level one, but then to stay at that level and perform at that level. Um, yeah, there, there's so many sacrifices that uh, that goes with it as well. So what was your support or who was in your support group? Oh, look, I think I had some good people. When I first got to the club, so Michael Long and Shay Cockatoo Collins were the two players that, you know, I really lent on. When I moved to Melbourne, my first contract as a rookie list player was $10,340. So after tax, um, but then, you know, when I moved out from Longies, I then had to buy a fridge, a washing machine and a bed because, like I said, I only came over with that green sports bag. So I, uh, by the time you bought that, it doesn't really leave you much money, you know, to, to get through a, a season and I didn't. I was one of those guys where they, I think the club offered me to go and stay with a host family, but because I'm a very private person, I, I, I wanted to live on my own. And, you know, that's where I, I never had any money. So, you know, going to Longy's place to, to, for dinners or Shay's house, uh, just to make sure that I, I survived. And um, so they, they were very good to me in that, in that first year. And, you know, all the players were very supportive and, you know, the Essen players were, were going to the movies or going bowling or whatever it is, but I'd always say, you know, I've, I've got something on, um, so I can't make it. But I had no one in Melbourne that I knew that I would have something on with, but it was just because I was broke the entire time that, you know, I, I had no money. So I'd always avoid and come up with these reasons why I couldn't. Um, and so, you know, Longy and Shay were fantastic. But as I got on, you know, obviously my wife, Sam, um, Know, getting married and, and you know she was a, another Territorian down here uh, playing basketball in the you know I guess the latter part of my my career and um, yeah it's there's some fantastic people here on a similar journey that may not necessarily be in the AFL environment but you know we had a good Darwin connection here or territory connection where you know a lot of people that live in Melbourne that are from the territory would get together and have have barbecues and catch-ups and, and just check on in each other. And, and that in itself was a, a good support group. Yeah, I've definitely come across that uh, sort of network in Melbourne. It's funny, they all sort of gravitate toward each other, those from the top end. Um, so what about the, because uh, Loris talks a lot about the Italian connection. Did you have much to do with them? And he often he sort of laughs and jokes about how they'd be swearing and, and carrying on in Italian when um, Sheedy might be giving a speech at quarter time. Uh, did you have much to do with them? They didn't invite you over for any pasta? 
Oh, look, oh, very close friends with, you know, well, they had Mark McCurry and Joe Mercedes and Steve Alessio, you know, Dave Kelthorpe. There's a very good connection there, you know, and I was very close. And I guess the Italians are very similar to the, you know, the Aboriginal uh, families where it's very much about family and they're, they're close knit. And, uh, you know, all those guys grew up around the Essendon area anyway, but you, you'll go to the Essendon Footy Club and you'll see all the, the Aboriginal players will sort of stick together um, as much as, you know, we're all friends with everyone is just you know that you, that's where your little uh security blanket is is you know with the the other aboriginal players and then you see the italians over there and you know they always have their own little uh jokes going on in the corner and um you know you, you um, they try and teach you a bit of their language and vice versa we teach them ours but uh yeah it was uh they're great people and especially the ones that i get to play with you know uh, i think joe Mercedes and uh, um you know is still a a very close friend of mine and, uh, you know, always had great relationships with, with Mercury and Alessio as well. So you ended up playing 100 games and as I alluded to at the start of the episode, I think that was for you the, the big goal. Like that was the big thing you wanted to achieve in the private conversations we've had over the years. You talked about wanting to have played 100 games and you ended up being very, very lucky enough to play 100 and I think you played 100 in total throughout your career. That was your final game. What, I know there's a story behind this as to how that ended up becoming possible. Do you care to share that? Oh, look, when I first got to the club, Sheedy's first interview with me um, was, you know, he called me in the room. He goes, what do you want out of the game? You know, and I said, look, Sheeds, all I want is to put my name on the locker, you know, um, on the Essendon Football Club locker. And, and when I was given 43, that's the, the high numbers are the ones when, when you're a rookie list player or a first year player, you get the, the leftover numbers that no one wants. So 43, you know, I was given that number and, and you look on the everyone's locker, anyone that's played 100 games, you know, their names are on the locker and no one was on 43. Um, but, yeah, that's why I said to Sheets, look, I'd love to play 100 games. I love the Essendon Football Club. Uh, all I want to do is to, to play 100 games and to play in a premiership under yourself and with Michael Long. And he goes, so nothing else? You know, you, you don't want to play 200 or 300 games and... Um, I said, no, at least if I can get 100, that's great. Um, so they were the things that he'd always remember. And look, when I got to 96, that was probably when I should have retired. But she's, uh, you know, he wanted me to get to that 100, obviously remembering that conversation. But deep down, I know that, uh, you know, that the father-son was a, a big thing as well. So that's where, you know, I think it was get to 100. And he said, yep, remember our conversation. But I know... You know, deep down that he wanted to make sure that, you know, if I uh, ever had a son, that obviously Essendon would get first pick. So, yeah, look, I'm just grateful. You know, he didn't have to do that to me. And I know we weren't going to play finals that year. We, we, we struggled in 2006. Um, so, yeah, I was, I was very lucky that uh, yeah, I was able to, to get that 100 and, and get my name up on the locker. So that, that, that was 2006, was it, the year that you retired? Yeah. Yep. And so what was life like? at that point because elite sport it's pretty hard work it's very time consuming you have to just dedicate so much time and energy to yourself essentially and then to the into the team you know to get the best out of yourself <laughs> i imagine it must be difficult then to retire and then and then what yeah exactly and then what so <laughs> Uh, look it's and look I, I was mentally prepared obviously with the knee injury uh I was never, I think my last three years, I wasn't able to do much running before Christmas. It was always pool, boxing, bike, 
um, just to, to, to get a, a good base of fitness. And um, so, look, I, I was ready, even though I had another year in 2007 on my contract. Uh, you know, after talking to the doctor, he just said, mate, you can't go on. Um, and they sat down with Sheeds and, and basically yeah, said, look, it'd be better if uh, you did step away. And, uh, you know, it was sort of a mutual thing and that it'd be good to, to get someone else on the list. And, um, but then, yeah, look, I think mentally because I was prepared and ready to, to end my career there, I already had some interests outside. So, you know, I was passionate about, you know, Aboriginal health, uh, where I had the Rioli Fund uh, for Aboriginal mental health and child health. And I was involved with uh, employment programs. So, um, you know, keeping busy through, you know, work while I was still playing, uh, it was a sort of an easier transition where some people, some players, you know, just get told, well, that's it. And then it's like, oh, well, you know, they mentally might have uh, another three or four years in their mind. But, um, you know, I, I was I was lucky enough that I was prepared. And, you know, so to go into employment, but then to start my coaching journey, coaching was always something that I wanted to do. So, um, yeah, I, I found the transition um, fairly easy, purely because, you know, I, I was ready for it. So what did you do immediately after in 2007? Do you remember? Uh, so 2007, I was employed by the Electrical Trade Union. Um, so with that, that was just to, to attract Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders into an electrical apprenticeship. Um, so Dean Mile, um, you know, he was the head of the, the Electrical Trade Union. He had 18,000 members here in Victoria, but I think he only knew one Indigenous electrician. So that was his goal was to let's attract more uh, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islanders into that electrical trade. Um, so that, that was my journey. I guess that, that kick-started my um, career in the, the recruitment employment space. And, uh, and then I coached Keelor Park. Um, and Keelor Park is just a small, very small uh, football club in the Essendon District League. And the only reason why I chose being Joe Mercedi and Mark McCurry's football um, local football club they were the ones that looked after us. So I had my younger brother, so Shannon, Ben and Sabo, that moved to Melbourne for a year. Um, and they went to Keelor Footy Club and Keelor turned them away, basically saying, you know, we had too many kids. And Keelor Park were the ones who said, look, we'd love to have you come and play here. So they looked after my younger brothers while I was there. So I always had it in my head that when I retire, I'll go and, go and help them out. And so, yeah, I ended up coaching and, and you know, brought down... Uh, a few territory players, a big Brad Stevenson and and Randall Rioli and uh, you know Brad Palapamini and yeah, there was a whole heap of players that I brought down and uh, to keep me company at that football club as well. And is that where Josh Cabello was, or was that another club? No, uh, that's Aberfeldy. So after Keelor Park, I then went across to Aberfeldy and um, yeah, I, I spent you know four four years there as a coach, and that's where you know I got some. Some of my ex-teammates, you know, Courtney Johns and Mel Michael and Damian Peverell and, and Josh Cabillo. Uh, got Josh. Josh is now a, I think he was a, the captain of the, the decade and, you know, I think he's a three or four-time premiership player there and he's just an amazing player, um, you know, and it was good for him to go and see him go back to Wanderers and play back there this year. But I've seen a photo that he's, he's back in Melbourne again and, and still at the club. So I think it's, you know, he's been there uh, probably... 10, 11 years now. So he's had a great career. Yeah, and he's definitely doing very well for himself outside of sport too. So then what led you to move back to Darwin and then get into coaching up there? Oh, look, I was 
at that stage, I think it was 18 years that I was away uh, from the territory. I'd never lived there, so it was just the right time to to go back. I, you know, my dad uh, started getting sick, and and it was good. I I, I spent three months, good three months, with him um, before he then passed away. Um, so I think uh, that was the, the main reason. It was just something was dragging me back there, and I always said, you know. I don't think I'll ever leave Melbourne. But something dragged me back at that stage. I was fortunate that I got those three months with uh, with my dad. And, um, yeah, I think going back there, it was always then, well, what do I want to do, you know, coaching-wise? And because, you know, I've never been involved with the, the NTFL since I was a, you know, 14-year-old, you know, when I was 15-year-old playing seniors up there. And, and then I hadn't played in the NTFL uh, since then. So uh yeah so to go back and you know St Mary's is obviously where the family is but because I'd never played for St Mary's um you know my thing I wanted to do what Uncle Morris did Uncle Morris went back and coached the sides that were struggling and that's where Waratahs were on the bottom of the ladder and uh, so that was my thing is well who's who's on the bottom of the ladder and who needs my help more um and where can I add uh, my support that's where Palmerston were, were not travelling so well at that stage. So obviously went over to Palmerston. And, uh, but, you know, getting across to Wanderers, uh, who basically won the flag the year before. So that, that was completely different to what I was planning on doing. But obviously my connection with a lot of those people at Wanderers um, was a, a good fit for me to, to go and coach over there. Um, and look, I love my time there as well. It's a, an amazing football club. So, uh, yeah. But I... I uh, yeah, I don't know if I'm ready to continue coaching anymore. I think I'm done. <laughs> it's pretty time-consuming, isn't it? Even no. like in NTFL level, not I can't even imagine AFL level. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm uh, what I've been coaching fourteen years now, and uh, this was my year that I was supposed to have off, and yeah, but got talked into uh, helping some. Uh, I'm now helping uh, the Mooney Valley Women's Football Club, so that's. That's been quite enjoyable, actually, working with women um, football team. And after coaching senior men for 14 years, I think the uh, the women is uh, uh, the women's footy comp is just growing rapidly around Australia, which is fantastic. So, are you the head coach? Because you say you're helping. Are you coaching, I'm or are you? I'm uh, because I'm there for the one year. My role is really to work with their coaches. Um, so, I'm the senior women reserves coach so or when I say coaches so there's a there's two two female coaches there um, that I will work with them so one's still playing and well they're both still playing but one of the uh, Yaz is having the year off obviously uh, she's having a baby her first baby so uh, my role is just to, to mentor those two so you know they can become you know coaches um, once they're ready to retire and uh, so I'll find myself, I'm training now the, both the senior women and the men, so working with the senior coaches as well. And so on our away games, the reserves and seniors play a separate ground, so I'll go and work with the, the reserves. But on home games, the reserves start at 9 o'clock and the senior women at uh, 11, so I've got to then coach the reserves and then help the... So I do back-to-back with the women's game. But, yeah, look, I'm, I'm enjoying it. Very busy. Um, so... To come back to that time in Darwin, what was it like? Because so I met you when you first came on, you were sort of helping Wanderers that first year. I can't remember what year it was. It must have been around 2014-ish. And um, 
you, Paul Motler was the head coach at the time. And I remember you saying to me, I'm looking for a head coaching job next season. Are you keen to come with me? And I was more than willing. You understood where I was coming from with everything. And uh, it was, I think it was just a great fit. What was it like working with Palmerston who were a struggling side at the bottom of the ladder compared to a Wanderers who had won the premiership the year before? Oh, look, I, I really enjoyed working with the, the Palmerston playing group. Obviously, uh, it's stripping it right back as a coach and, and going back to basics. And, and, you know, when a side is struggling, it's, it's really then, well, how do we, how do we uh, create a, a, an environment around the place where, you know, players want to come to training, they enjoy it because they, they, they're learning. Um, and that's, that's really what it is, is, um, you know, we're on the opposite side. When you look at Wanderers who had just won the premiership the year before, um, they had such a fantastic list. Um, so with that list, it was about, well, how do we play to your strengths and, and how do we then um, come in as a new coaching team and, and um, create a, a, a football program that isn't going to change too much because you don't want to change a, a premiership winning formula. Um, it's then come in, you, you've got your own you know, set of um, you know, coaching style and, and values, I guess, as a coach and you, you push that down onto the, the coaching group. But there's not a hell of a lot that you need to change. You, you just tweak a few things that, uh, um, you know, and it worked. We played in a, a couple of grand finals, wasn't, um, you know, able to win any. Um, but, yeah, look, I, I think when you've got a quality group, it's just working to their strengths. And, and you know, we got to see Wanderers a bit uh, leading up to coming across and coaching them. So you knew where the players played and, um, you know, what their strengths were and, and, and areas that they could improve on. But that's where the Palmerston side, it was just you're working with a blank canvas, really. And, um, you know, you can set your own standards and, and then you need to get there. And I didn't know much about the playing group. So I was really getting to understand what their strengths are as, as individuals. And then, um, yeah, so, you know, it was just good to, to strip it right back and, and really go back into teaching uh, a lot of basic stuff and, and implementing a a good uh, fitness program, which you did, um, where it was just let, let's get this uh, baseline fitness in and then the football stuff will will follow. Yeah, the thing for me that I really noticed, the stark difference is that with Palmerston, it was a lot more hands-on as a coach, whereas at Wanderers, it was a lot more give the players control and they already had that very strong set leadership um, and so there was already a leadership group kind of essentially there was the natural leaders that but they'd already created that whereas at Palmerston it was very raw and I feel like the coaches did a lot more we sort of took more control and we sort of guided a lot more uh, and tried to build that kind of leadership and I, I remember we were doing a lot of stuff um, a lot particularly um, with the help of Alwyn Davy when he came back and played around the leading teams type stuff and creating the you know what what are our values and what do we want to you know live for and play for and like um you know yeah essentially what our what are our, our values and then creating that culture like that whereas at wonder is that culture had already been created and there was already those sort of um structures in place in terms of leadership and group dynamics and one of the things that i really noticed you do a lot was you wouldn't always be the, very rarely actually, you would be the one standing at the front of the group. It would often be, you might be there and sort of do some talking at the start and at the end. 
but you would give a lot of control to the assistant coaches. So there'd be times when, particularly on a Tuesday, I would have a big chunk of time in charge. And then there'd be another assistant coach like Stephen Coops, for example, who'd come in and he would work with the forwards and then, or someone else, like Bruce Jarman might work with the backs. And um, so different coaches would take different things and then different players would take. And I, I think actually at Palmerston, one of the things you did, which I really liked was giving players, maybe in pairs, um, control and say, you're going to take this section of training tonight. So be prepared. I want you to bring, you know, what it is you want to do. And then at Wanderers, it was much, um, it was still the same you where you didn't have as much um, control where you would sit back, you would observe and you would watch and just have complete faith in your assistant coaches as well as the leadership players within the group. But even every single player to be able to, allowed them to take that control and, and show that leadership. So I think, uh, you know, look, my style as a coach is you, you bring in the assistant coaches that you you, you want to work with and you trust and, and, you know, your fitness staff and your support staff. And and that's, it's like anything. If you're bringing uh, quality people in and there's nothing worse than if you're the head coach and you're, you're taking charge on absolutely everything. You know, the amount of conversations that will say you and I for the fitness program, you know, we talk well before the preseason would start and uh, what do we want to achieve and what, what type of uh, running, uh, what type of strength work we're going to do. And that's the thing. It's, uh, you know, we, we'd have those conversations and then, you know, you're the expert at that. So my thing is, is, you know, if I brought you in, I need you to, you know, I trust that you, you're going to, you know, run with the program that you believe is going to work. And, and same with the, the forwards coaches and the, the midfield or, or the backs. You know, we, we would have those conversations on what we want to work with. But unless the assistant coaches are heavily involved with, you know, delivering their messages at their style, that's what I, I really enjoy is, is seeing other people grow um, because, you know, the, the, the Stephen Coops and, you know, Scrubber was a lot more experienced uh, a coach so you know he's been doing it for a while but you know the, the Brucey Jarmans and the um, you know the Shawnee Hills who you know are probably a lot more um, you know quieter in terms of uh, less coaching experience but that was my thing was trying to push them because eventually you want the, these assistant coaches that you've worked with to to go on and, and become a head coach one day right so if I was the one just doing all the talking as an assistant I would feel well, what value am I adding here so that's why it was big on, on making sure that the coaches uh, played a, a much more vocal role and, and, and uh, a role where they feel that they're, they're growing in that role, um, not just coming in and, and sort of behind the scenes type thing. It's no, well, you, you know, if you've got something to say, then, you know, you go up and, and you say, because they would come to me at times and say, well, you know, maybe we need to do this. And I said, well, there you go. There's your group. And, you know, you, you go and say it because, and that, that gave them the confidence so that, you know, when they spoke, players looked them in the eye, they listened and, and you know, that they, uh, they, they had valuable contributions. So it made them want to stick around and, and want to learn more. And, of course, Peter Leonard, as you mentioned, um, commonly known as Scrubber, and Daniel Motlop was um, another one that was at Wanderers and uh, who was an assistant coach also playing at the time. But you just said something that I wanted to get to. And so it's a perfect little segue into it. And that is look them in the eye. And I learned so many things from working with you for those five seasons. And a lot of those things can be taken so far out beyond sport and into life in general. And one of them was looking you in the eye when you're talking. I was often the runner on game day. And so you demanded that I looked you in the eye. Personally, I 
hate looking people in the eye, <laughs> but you made made me look you in the eye, and it was something that I learned and developed. And then in even just like delivering a message and understanding that communication is a two way process. So not just to, which is very difficult in a game of football as a runner because you're trying to take a message from the coach and you might have multiple messages because you might have other messages from other assistant coaches or other players that are sitting on the bench, you know, that want to also get a message out as you're about to run out. At the same time, you're trying to create a rotation that might be three-way and then take that message, deliver it to a player, make sure they understand it so that then you're demanding that I have eye contact. I'm demanding they have eye contact. I'm making sure they're clear on that message. They understand it so that I run back because you would then often say, what did you say? What specifically did you tell him? And so I knew there was accountability there. So I need to make sure that they, and one of the worst for delivering a message to that I hated the most was Thomas Motlop because he'd always want to argue back with what I was about to say. And I would always have to try and soften it. Actually, I want to know your opinion on this. Do you, would you prefer a runner who goes out and delivers the message in their way, sort of, sort of understanding each individual player and going, okay, I need to be a bit softer with this one and a bit tougher with this one. Or do you just want it, that runner to be more of an actor and deliver it exactly how you are delivering it on the bench? Well, that's why I found you as, you know, the best runner I've had in my coaching career. It's obviously because you were involved with the fitness of that playing group. You knew them individually. And look, because, you know, the way that I would say it to you, um, you know, obviously that's where the emotions are running high and the pressure's on. So obviously the way I would say it to you isn't exactly the way I'd want it to the player. But you would, as long as, long as you knew all right, I'm going out to Thomas or VV or Daniel or doesn't matter who you're delivering the message to, you know how to deliver the message, right? So if it came straight from me at that time, then it wouldn't be as effective. So that's why it's always good that you would go out and you would know the individuals and you would know how to rev them up or, or deliver a message a certain way. Um, so, yeah, that's why it was always good that you knew how to do it. It was never, never deliberate how I would, uh, you know, pass it on to you. It was just deliberate as best we can. Um, but that's where the eye contact is. You know, there's so many times where you would be coaching and you're talking to a player or a group and you would see if there's that blank look in their face, you know that he doesn't know ex what the hell you're talking about, right? So that's why it's important for me is the, the, the looking in the eye. As long as I'm, I'm delivering a message, you know, to yourself, you're looking at me and you're nodding, go, yep, I understand, cool, all right? When I know you go out, you're going to deliver in your way exactly what we want. Um, and that's why as a playing group, you know, when you're talking to them and, you know, their eyes are on the ground or they're looking elsewhere, you don't know if they've, you know, you can tell in someone's eyes whether they get what you're saying or not. And that's where I'm big on it. And, and that's where the challenge is, you know, with, uh, you know, coaching some Aboriginal players who, uh, you know, they say they don't like to look you in the eye and that. And, you know, out on that um, outside of the football arena, um, that's one thing. But when... I demand it, you know, it's like, yes, okay, I understand out there you might feel uncomfortable, but right here you're going to learn if you're going to play in this environment. Um, when I talk to you, you look at me in the eye because I want to see if you've got that blank look or whether you fully understand exactly what I'm asking of you. And and it's just a trust thing. So, you know, and that's where it's a, it's a, a thing that players then will learn and they'll quickly understand where, you know, if the coach is talking just, you know, for that, 30 seconds to a minute, just, you know, make the effort just to look him in the eye and 
keep him happy and that's it. Yeah, it's funny because often I'd be getting this message and then running out just going, how am I going to deliver this? How am I going to say this? And, yeah. you know, trying to like do that on the way out to, yeah, to make sure that it was delivered the best way possible. And often, not often, but sometimes you didn't even need to off to say stuff. And it would be someone like a Daniel Motlop or a Thomas Motlop where you could just run out and just go, you know, yeah. give them that yeah. look, you know, there's that little eyebrow, that eye, that glance, you know, yeah. words aren't even necessary. And they just look at you go, I know. And then yeah. get on. And that's it. Really the difference between, you know, the Wanderers and the Palmerston is because Palmerston were very much a learning, um, you know, a stage. Wanderers were very much a, a, a quality outfit um, with quality leaders on the football um, field that they already knew, you know, and they, and that's where the benefit of having Daniel Motlop as an assistant coach and on the field, you know, he was just so valuable. And, you know, it, it's, uh, he was in the later stage of his career, but the value that he added to that football club was massive. And um, that's why, you know, you go out there and the senior players already knew, you know, they'd already spoken about it before the, the, the runner would go out. Um, but, you know, that's, that's the difference between having a side that's competing for finals and a side that's developing and trying to get off the bottom. So, uh, yeah, and, you know, the hardest job, I think, on a football uh, team uh, is that runner role, you know, because uh, it, it is, you know, because our relationship, you and I, you know, we've got such a, a fantastic relationship when we're so close. But then it's just, you know, when you're on the phone delivering the message, like I'm yelling at you and, you know, cursing at times uh, where I'm not cursing at you, but I'm cursing at you. Um, but the message is to go out to the, the playing group. But yeah, that's where, you know, I think our relationship was, our professional relationship was so good because you knew even though I'm screaming at you, it's not really screaming at you. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's a weird relationship, the runner and the, the, the coach. It is very much so. And I think, and everyone in the team, in the players included, need to understand, like, I, love, I just thrive on it. I love it, that high-pressure environment where someone might be absolutely tearing strips off you or... Not that you ever did that, but someone might be yelling, you know, like, yeah, you know, do this, do that, tell him this. And, you know, they might be just going nuts, but it's not a direct attack. It's not. And even if someone is actually saying, you know, what did you specifically say? Or if it's a player copying a dressing down, you know, like, what are you thinking kind of thing? It's not anything personal. And I think that's something that really sets that that's a huge part of culture. And that sets the, um, the, the great teams apart from the good teams is that even when you have, you need to have those open and honest and really raw conversations and, you know, sometimes not even conversations, but like, you know, direct lines of message where it's not anything personal. It's just, it's the environment. And, and I really loved that. Yeah. Look, it's, uh, that's where you, you notice the good sides. Um, and, you know, even though you have good sides, there's some players in there that, you know, a struggle with that two-way communication as well. And, and I think, you know, a good team, you just set your, your, your standards and, the, and your expectation. And when you say that, it, it's your performance, but it's your communication. It's, uh, you know, your reliability and accountability and, and all those, those words that you use for successful environments. And that's the thing. This is what we expect. And, uh, you know, a, a message as well. It's, there's a certain way you can deliver a Addressing down, as you called it, it's, um, you know, you need to make sure it's constructive, uh, it's worded correctly. And that's why, you know, that the, the messages that I would yell to you on a phone, 
very rarely would you hear me yell that loud or ever uh, to the actual playing group. So by the time you know, you're delivering a message during a high-pressured uh, environment, uh, you know, a game stage, uh, by the time you then you, you calm down and you get down to the playing group, you're there to talk about, okay, well, what are some of the issues out there and how can we address it? You, you, you need to be constructive. So that's why I'm thankful there is a siren and there is a runner in between because, you know, the, the, the easing of the messaging and then the, the time it takes to get to the, the, from the, uh, the coach's box to a, a playing group, um, you know, it works out well for me as a coach because yeah, the last thing I want to be doing is yelling at the players like I yelled at, at, at yourself. <laughs> so what was the difference like? This is the last thing I want to sort of touch on between coaching the men and the women. Have you noticed much difference there? Oh, massive difference, you know, and that's the thing. I guess, you know, the, a lot of these senior men have been playing footy for a long time and, um, you know, they, they've had many different coaches. Now they're, they're coaching the women. Some of them, are, this is their first year of playing football, you know, and they might be, you know, some might be, you know, 25, 30 even, just coming and joining football for the first time. And then there are others who have played since Auskick and, you know, so it's a varying range of, of, of skill level um, but, and experience in the game. And, uh, but one thing about um, the women that I'm finding is you talk about look you in the eye. They, you know, they are like sponges. They want to learn. They want, they want to be challenged. You know, they, they're coming and joining a, a football. They love watching it on TV. They, they've all got their footy teams. And, and I think when you're, you're coaching women, you've got to strip it back, but explain as well. And, you know, we talk about the word front and square. So if you're a senior man that's been around the football scene for a while, everyone knows what front and square is. But, you know, anything that, any terminology that I would use um, in, with the, the girls, I'd always have to be clear is, you know, I'll say the word front and square, but then I'd stop and say, okay, put your hand up if you don't know what front and square is. And you'd be surprised. there will be, you know, 15, 20 uh, of the women will put their hand up. So you go back and you explain, well, what is front and square? And then, you know, so everything that you use, um, it, it's good because it's almost like you're coaching, uh, I guess, juniors where you, because my terminology of coaching 14 years of men, sometimes you just speak and and you're, you would expect that majority of the, the senior men would understand. So that's why I've enjoyed coaching the women because now all the terminology I use, I've then got to explain what everything means. And, and you go back and, and it's just simplifying absolutely everything. And, you know, so that's where I've enjoyed my time because now it, it makes me realize uh, my communication style and whatever I'm delivering, make sure that you explain and that, you know, look everyone in the eye. And if there's any blank faces, stop. And because there'll be others in the group that don't know what you're saying and but are too shy to put their hands up so that's why it's important I think uh, you know to, to very much simplify and explain everything so I'm, I'm really enjoying that part of it. The big difference that I found between men and women is in about in our last year which must have been about 2016 or thereabouts I had the privilege of being able to work two nights a week with the men and then two nights a week with the women and uh, Dave Totten was the women's coach and the, the big difference that I found between the two was the mentality, particularly around fitness as the fitness person, the, the men sort of saw it as a, um, as something that they had to do as a bit of a hindrance of like, Oh, I've got to go and you know, do this or do that. That Jacob's making me do happy cat, angry cat out there for Damien Nikki. Um, or 
with the women, it was more of an opportunity. They saw it as an opportunity, like, oh, we got the fitness guy coming out and he's going to, you know, deliver this program for us. And so I found that a, a, a huge difference between the two was the mentality around the fitness guy. Mm. Yeah. Oh, look, mate, uh, there's so many things. And, you know, there were, there were things that I brought into a, a senior men's environment, you know, for, for every player that was late, the, the entire team would then do uh, runs, you know, so it might be a uh, 40 metre up and back suicide, for instance, there'd be six blokes that are late. So we're doing six of those. Uh, I know I did that with the, the senior women here and, you know, it was the first time I think there was uh, 12 that were late. So I was like, okay, up and back 12 times, everyone as a team. And then that very much quickly take, makes sure that, okay, well, let's get here on time. Um, but I found then, you know, there was some that were, oh, I'm going to be probably two or three minutes late. Oh, I just won't go to training because I don't want the whole team to. And that's why I like, I'll quickly drop that and just, you know, I want to encourage uh, you know, the women to make sure they attend, even if it's for the last 15 minutes of training, um, because they've had to work back late. You want to make sure they get there because, you know, every every minute they spend on the training track is going to be valuable. And, and you know, just the, the AFLW at the moment is you can see each year how much it's improved. And, um, you know, we, we obviously love the Adelaide Crows and, and you know, who are playing in the grand final this weekend. And um, that's why I, I'm really, you know, excited about helping helping the women's footy team, it's only because, you know, we've got such a, uh, a genuine interest in the AFLW that yeah, I think, you know, if we can give back at the, the lower leagues and hopefully see one or two of these girls go on and, and you know, play on AFLW competition, that'll be awesome. Yeah, I think I personally have also noticed a difference in, I think it's the fifth year now of the AFLW and every year it's gotten better quality in terms of skills and also fitness. And it's, to me, it is noticeably different compared to when it first started. The skills are, I'm genuinely shocked at how quickly the skills have come on. And of course, you're talking about the Adelaide Crows and we both have an involvement with Danielle Ponte. You are her manager. And um, just quickly, let's sidestep into that. How did that all come about? How did you get into player management and then end up picking up Danielle Ponta? Well, look, I've got a player management. Uh, so my player manager was Peter Jess when I was playing. Um, so Jesse's he's the accredited player agent. So I just, um, you know, work with the, the players um, when they come on and, um, you know, he signs a contract. So Joel Jeffrey um, is one of our players up in the Gold Coast as well. And um, so, yeah, my role is just to, to support Jesse. You know, he's, he's been doing this. You know, he used to do Nicky Winmar and, and Timmy Watson and, you know, Greg Williams, and he had some really big name play, uh, you know, players that he was managing. But, you know, for him to be looking after Danielle and and uh, Joel Jeffrey and, and, you know, a few others that we're working with, my role is just to make sure, you know, that I communicate closely with Danielle and, you know, what do we want? And because, you know, the, the Gold Coast Suns obviously have that connection with, with the, the NT, uh, with Darwin. So, you know, and I know that, you know, they, they every year they'll, they'll go hard after her and, um, you know, and, and like the, all the other clubs. But I think being a part of the Adelaide environment, it's, you know, when you've got players like Aaron Phillips and, you know, Ebony Marinoff and, and Chelsea Randall and, well, you know, that's where you're going to learn your, your trade. And you talk about culture and, and winning environment. Well, that's, you know, to see Stevie Lee and, and Daniel, you know, being a part of that, that group, it's just exciting. And that's why, you know, I've been a Crow supporter for the women, not the men, the women in, um, you know, since they've entered, 
But uh, yeah, look, that's where I just look after them. So I don't do a contracts, but I do work closely with the with the crows. Um, you know, Phil, um, and make sure that she's uh, she's happy. Yeah. So just to give a bit of background to all that, it's that you were managing Danielle, and when she was signing her contract, and please correct me if I'm wrong in any. This is the way I understand it. She was uh, tossing out between the Gold Coast Suns and Adelaide Crows, and that Crows said to her, you know, well if you sign with us, we'll, what about if we let you stay in Darwin for half the week, essentially in order to keep her job? Because um, the pay is not that great in um, women's AFL. And so that allowed her to be able to stay in Darwin and keep her job Monday to Monday to Wednesday. And then she, as she put it to me, jumped at that chance and was like, couldn't sign quick enough. And um, and that's a two-year two year deal. So that goes for 2020 and, uh, sorry, 2021 and 2022. Yep. And uh, then um, Phil, who you just mentioned, uh, who is the football operations manager, said, okay, to you, well, we need someone to look after and Darwin, who do you recommend? And I'm just going to blow my own horn here a little bit, as you know, that I like to do. And uh, you said, well, there's only one guy that I recommend. And so I got the phone call. I, I actually couldn't believe that how quickly and easily that all happened. He, five minutes after we spoke on the phone, um, Phil called me and said, thank you for doing this. And, um, you know, how much do you charge? And I said, Oh, that's no, all right. I've got a full-time job. It's okay. You don't need to pay me. I'll just have, be happy to do this for free. And he laughed and said, uh, no, no, Matt, we, we are, we're going to pay you. Um, go away and think about it and get back to me. And, um, anyway, I think I'm way undercharged, but either way. Um, so I'm just so happy to have that experience. It's been so good. And, and if anyone's sort of been on, my Instagram and seeing the little bit of banter that I have, I, I like to share Danielle's stuff because she's almost, she almost feels like one of my own kids now. Just because when you're working one-on-one -on -one with someone, she comes back to Darwin, she's here for three days and then she flies back and then trains with the group. I feel like I've got this real, or I do this massive vested interest in, in her success. And it's been so good to see her be so successful. Yeah. And look, I, I love the videos, you know, and, She's, uh, she's an exciting talent um, and, you know, so young still. So, you know, she's only going to get better each time. And um, But, yeah, look, she's, she's a fantastic person. But I enjoy watching the videos, um, you know, and just to see her one-on-one. -on -one. And she is. She's so competitive. Uh, she wants to get better. Um, and that's where, you know, I guess the, the Adelaide knew that, you know, because normally it was only, you know, sort of that four- or five-month season as well when you talk about pre-season and then the, the competition. So to ask someone to, you know, give up their job and come down, and like you said, the pay is increasing each year, but it's, you know, it's not enough to, to throw in your job to go and, you know, chase an AFLW uh, contract uh, and, you know, with the, without the certainty of, you know, an ongoing uh, opportunity. So that's where, you know, they, they knew that and they, they're very accommodating and making sure that look, for someone like Danielle, as long as she's, doing the work uh, when she's back home. And that's where I thought, you know, when I recommended yourself, um, yeah, it, it's been a great fit. So, you know, the, the, and, you know, it, it's it's challenging because, you know, obviously when you're there full-time, you're training with the group full-time, you, you, you know, you, you get involved, I guess, with the, the, the fitness side and then the, the theory part of football and the game plans and the styles and everything that she's fine. But, that's where, you know, she performs each week and, and plays a role that, you know, helps them win. So it's uh, it's a good fit for, for Adelaide and Danielle at the moment and yourself. Yeah, I think you got an Adelaide Crow shirt out of it. Wasn't that your your deal? 
I said, yeah, I said to Phil, I said to Phil, um, oh, my only condition is that I get a uniform and he's like, oh, easy done. Um, send up two shirts with Danielle. But there was, there's a play that I put up on an Instagram reel that you commented on and it was where she just absolutely burst through the pack. And in, in my fitness head, all I can see is the technique and the drive, the acceleration phase of what we've been working on take take all the other players out of it take the ball out of it and like that's all I could see and I was just so excited to be able to see that come to fruition which then resulted in a goal yep. and uh and I put it up and you said um are you going to take credit for the goal as well so then the next week I thought oh, we'll have a bit of fun and um and you know we'll do some kicking we're actually kicking with tennis balls we use all different sorts of balls for a bit of I, I kind of got the idea I don't know him personally but I got the idea from um uh Mark Williams the former port coach yep. And, uh, you know, we try and do all that kind of stuff just to make it fun. you got to try and mix things up when it's just you and someone else and maybe even one of our friends uh, okay. training. And, um, yeah, so that was where all that came from with that little bit of banter back and forth. It's all good fun. Yeah. So, all right, so what's next for Dean? Uh, look, I obviously I've now set up my own uh, equipment hire business. So, you know, working in, I've been supplying or hiring people to major projects here in Victoria, you know, for, for 14 years, I guess, and being in that space. So getting out of the people's space and now hiring equipment, that's sort of where I've gone down. I'm on a couple of boards at the moment. So uh, Jobs Bank here in Victoria, uh, Bridge and the Gap Foundation is another, um, you know, deputy chair um, to help raise funds for Aboriginal, um, you know, health, education and employment programs. And also, you know, being a part of the, the, the MITS board as well. So MITS is where Sammy works, my wife, and, and that's the Melbourne Indigenous Transition School where a lot of the, uh, I think we've got 81 students. I think roughly 70 of them are from, you know, Tiwi Islands and Manangrita and Owen Pally and, uh, you know, different parts of communities around the territory. So, yeah, look, there's a few things that I'm... I've got my hands in um, and obviously with the women's footy as well, but yeah, just keep myself busy. And um, yeah, my daughter's moving up to Darwin. And um, so yeah, we're, we're still umming and ahhing, you know, well, is Melbourne still going to be home or is it, uh, I know Sammy's pretty keen to, to get back to the territory. Um, but yeah, it's, it's what will that look like? Obviously my business is down here, um, which, you know, you can work, everywhere now that uh, post-COVID a lot of the stuff is online anyway but yeah so there's some things we need to work out or well, what does it look like past 2021 and watch this space I'm sure there'll be something exciting happening yes that's right all right we finish every episode with a 10 in 10 so it's 10 questions based on some notes that I've taken while you've been talking and you've got 10 seconds to answer you can give a one word response or a sentence whatever you would like to go we're not too strict with the 10 seconds so but, is it um, 10 seconds per answer or is it 10 seconds for the 10? 10 seconds per answer. Ah, okay. All right. Sometimes people go for two minutes though per answer, so it's not a big deal. I just, I like the thing 10 and 10. Yeah, yeah, sounds All good. right. You ready to go? Yep. Question one or statement one. First thing that comes to mind, Melbourne, Tiwi, Darwin. Melbourne. Number two, favourite position on the football field. Uh, half back. Really? I thought you were going to say full forward. 
No, look, I enjoyed that. Um, but yeah, I loved Halfback. I didn't get to play there enough. Um, but when I did, it was probably, you know, uh, that was my favourite position on the footy field. And a little sidestep here. What do you think is the, the most important position? Uh, the most? Oh, look, I, I think centre back. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, when Daniel Motlop played in that centre half back position, um, I think that just sets up your whole structure of, of your defence, which then turns into your offence. Uh, I would say centre half back. Number three, being overlooked. Yeah, me being overlooked, uh, speaking to 11 clubs, being overlooked. Um, yeah, that's that's heartbreaking. Obviously, you know, you speak to 11 clubs that all fly from, you know, all over Australia and, you know, Brisbane Lions and Adelaide Crows and, and Carlton and everyone flying to Adelaide, I mean, to Perth, talk to me. Yep, um, we, you just assume just because you've spoken to those clubs, you're going to get drafted. And then, you know, watching the or listening to the draft on the radio back then, and not having your name called out was absolutely devastating. So just quickly, how do you overcome that? Oh, look, the heartbreak, I was at work at the stage. I was working in a bottle shop in, in, in Western Australia and uh, I was just heartbroken and, and the boss just said, look, Dean, you can go home. And yeah, I did. I went and put my head under the pillow and, you know, and, uh, you know, I think then, you know, pre-season was already uh, about to kick in soon, not long after that. So... It was just get on the horse and go again. Um, you know, for that for that 12 hours after your name wasn't called, you know, all you want to do is just, well, stuff this, you know. And But, you know, the sun come up the next day and it was just, all right, let's get into it. Um, you know, the rookie draft is coming up. So, you know, hopefully I knew that, you know, I was then going to go and train with West Coast Eagles. And, um, yeah, I was just looking forward to that. So, yeah, that's why I was lucky. It's, you know, and, you know, I'd, I'd missed out on a few drafts where living in Darwin as that, you know, what was I, sort of 16, 17, I think it was, where, you know, Dean Rioli's going to get drafted and, you know, Gray Morris's articles that got overlooked and then overlooked and I was never ready anyway back then, but you, you love reading that stuff when you're a, a junior coming through. and um, But, yeah, you just move on pretty quickly and, and keep chasing it. So number four, being drafted. Being drafted, yeah, look, being drafted to the club I love, that was the the dream, you know. It's just not many players, you know, with the draft system at the moment, you can end up anywhere in Australia. And, um, you know, to get drafted to the club you barrack for, um, under the coach you admire and the, the player that you idolise, Michael Long, then, yeah, being drafted was uh, amazing. Number four, I feel like these have been perfectly, your answers are leading right perfectly into the next one. Number five, what does Essendon Football Club mean to you? Uh Look, it was my life. So growing up, that's all. My whole room was red and black, you know, and, and with Cindy Crawford as well on the other end. So it was just red, black and Cindy Crawford. That was all my <laughs> room. But that was my life uh, growing up and, you know, very grateful for, for the person that I've become because of joining that environment. Number six, the importance of support networks. Ah, oh, huge, huge. Everyone needs them. Um, you know, you, everyone will have challenging times. Everyone needs to make sure they've got people they can lean on and that they trust and, and can just be there for them. A lot of times you don't even need advice from them. You just need someone to be sitting next to you. Number seven, what does it mean to have played 100 AFL games? 
Oh, I've got my name on the locker. Um, you know, maybe if I had that first meeting with Sheeds and achieved higher and said 200 games, then, you know, I think I'm big on, you know, when you visualise it and you, you can achieve it. And um, But, you know, that was my my bar was just 100 to get my name. That was my absolute minimum. And, um, you know, my name will forever be on that locker. So very, very, uh, very grateful. And you talk about number with the high numbers being the ones that people don't really like. And I think you've actually made number 43. Number 43 is a popular number simply because of you. And now, of course, it's worn by um, McDonald, Tip and Woody. Is there any other names yet? On I'm just trying to think. I don't think there would be any names on that locker, number 43, yet? At Essendon? Yeah. No, nah, just Waller and I. So to have two Tiwi Islanders... On the Essendon Football Club locker, uh, number 43. Because I remember when Longy retired, the club asked me if I wanted 13. But, you know, I'd, I'd been sort of up around that 50, 50 games by that stage. And, you know, that was the thing. Now, I want to be, as much as I love Longy, I, I wanted to be the first name on 43. And now, you know, anyone who wears 43 after Waller, they're going to go in there and see, well, you know, there's a, two Tiwi names on this locker, 43. So, Every time a Tiwi Islander or a Territorian comes down and walks through the Essendon change rooms, they're going to say two NT Tiwi Islanders on that one locker, which is a, an awesome feat. That's very cool. Uh, number eight, coaching development teams versus coaching developed teams. Uh, development teams, that's my... It's always challenging um, to, to coach sides and because there's always, you know, generally you're always going to see improvement. Develop sides, you still see improvement um, into playing the way you would like them to play. But I, I've always had a thing for coaching sides on the bottom of the ladder. And, you know, the coaching record doesn't look great when you you, you, you have to rebuild sides. But that's the thing that I have the most enjoyment out of. Number nine, coaching women versus coaching men. Oh, look, I'm, I'm very fresh into coaching women, but... You know, this is, uh, I really enjoy it. So, you know, I've been doing 14, 14 years now of coaching men, um, but yeah, it's hard to say at this early stage, but at the moment I'm loving my time coaching women. And last question, question 10, is a question which I ask everybody, and it might seem like it's coming in from a little bit left field after that theme of questions. And it is, if you could go forward in time or back in time, which would you go to? And to what point and why? That's a good question, mate. I probably would go forward um, probably two years, um, you know. So obviously starting this new business of mine, it's, and that's what it is. It's purely about, you know, my, my business opportunities and my interests. Uh, what does it look like in a couple of years? Obviously, we're, we're growing at a very nice rate and, and things are all very positive. So... You know, you've got to you've got to go through these growth periods. Um, but for me, it's just like, okay, what do we look like? Well, one, where am I going to be in twelve months' time, or you know, at the start of next year? Is it going to be Melbourne? Is it going to be Darwin? But then, what does uh, a year after after that look like? You know, and so yeah, I'd go two years in time just to see what my where I am in my business life. It's funny because it, it's a bit of an insight, that question into people's mindset, because some people will think that they can only go forward or back and then they get stuck there. Whereas in my head, you can come back to now. So is, yeah. that's what I think you're saying. Is that correct? 
Well, right now it's uh, so because I'm undecided, you know, I'm just in the now in terms of building my business. Uh, and this is, you know, and a few other things that I'm involved with. So when you look at, uh, would you go back or forward? I've made a lot of mistakes in business, you know, or sorry, a lot of learnings in business, um, which I would not change at all. I, I am the, the person I am today in that business sense because of what I've gone through and what I've learned and what to keep an eye out for. Um, so, you know, I have no regrets um, with what I've had to learn in the past. So my thing is, is I'm excited for the next, well, the two year mark is a good question because it's like, well, where am I gonna be in exactly nine months from now? You know, I don't know if it's Melbourne, Darwin, but then what does it look like in, in 12, uh, 24 months? So that's probably a good time frame. But if you said five years, yeah, that's a, you know, that's a bit too far out. So I look at the smaller, smaller times, but yeah, definitely going forward two years. Um, yeah, to see what I'm achieving now is, is definitely the right choice or not. One of the little, you just reminded me of something that you said to me a few years ago, and I'm just realizing now, I knew you always had a pretty big impact on me, but I'm just realizing now just how, how big of an impact and in, in how many areas. Something you said to me was when you're starting a business, you need to look at it like a university degree and consider yourself going to university. So when I think back to going back and doing my double degree in sports science and teaching, which was four years, I wasn't earning money from teaching or whatever it might be once I've finished that degree. It was just study, 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 and just try and get that qualification, get that experience, get that qualification. And you had said, consider a business in the same way. Think about the first four years or three years, whatever, being like you're going and doing TAFE or doing a degree and getting that experience. And then you sort of, you know, and if you earn money, great, but it was something that I had then taken back and applied to my businesses. And it's actually what I'm doing right now with this podcast. It is weird, you know, like you, you, you do all the training, uh, you know, you get that certificate, which is absolutely vital, right? That's the absolute baseline. So you do your four years, you get this, doesn't mean then you're absolutely ready to go out and, and you know, kill it in the, the business world. It's then going out, once you get out in the business, it's all about networking then, you know, it's like, well, how do I meet the right people? How do I then, am I good at selling my product and, you know, getting in front of the right people and then it's the repeat business. It's like one thing that you'll be able to sell your product to someone, but will they keep coming back to you and will they refer people to you? So the biggest thing I always find is that that's going to take time is because people need to know, can I trust you? Is your product reliable? You know, and so that's why it's, you got your paper, that's the hard work done. And then the second phase of hard work starts again. And, you know, and then there's a, another part to that where, how do you then, you know, uh, continue on and, and grow from there? So just to get a start, that, that you know, two-year period is always challenging because you're new in the market. People already got, um, you know, businesses or people that they've got relationships with that they know have supported them in the past. So it's uh, you then need to go and sell yourself in, well, how, how can uh, you coming across to, to use me um, going to benefit yourself and compared to the next person. And, and that's where, you know, that storytelling is important is can you sell your product, but then is your product reliable? And so that two to three year, four year period um, after your, your qualification is, is always the hard part is trying to convince people why you're, you're better than the, the, the next person. 
Dean, you're always going to be successful uh, no matter what you do because of the mindset that you've got. I just want to acknowledge you for all the work that you do in health, in employment, in coaching, and thank you for your time today on the Mind Your Body Show, and thank you for coming on and being a guest. Uh, thanks, Dave. Good to see you, mate. Are you frustrated that no matter how much you try, no matter how good you plan to eat, no matter how much you intend to exercise, you just can't seem to stay on track with your health and fitness goals? Do you feel like your best of intentions to have more energy and feel better about yourself results in having even less energy and feeling down? What if there was something you were missing? What if eating healthy was actually enjoyable? What if you looked forward to exercise? What if moving more could actually be really easy? I've put together a free ebook just for you, detailing the strategies for having more energy and feeling better about yourself. And I want to give it to you absolutely free. To get instant access absolutely free, simply visit jacobandre.com. That's J-A-C-O-B-A-N-D-R-E-A-E.com.